Welcome to Lamestream here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter.com and Blue Sky at Braden Gall. Uh, my name is Steve Cavendish. You can follow me on Twitter.com, X.com, BlueSky.com, Instagram.com, all of the .coms. Uh, at Scavendish. Uh, if you like this show, the one you're listening to right now, please rate it, please review it, please subscribe to it. But most importantly, just tell somebody that you know that you're a fan of lamestream sports and they will be too. So they should be downloading it and listening to it right now. My absolute utter favorite part of this entire show is that the first word on this show from you is the word, uh, and I'm not editing it out. I'm not taking it out. This is the first word. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. <laughs> I should I've, I should have demanded final cut. I, I have done so much final cutting for you, my friend. Uh, here's the deal. As I just said, as I just did it myself. Look, Ben Portnoy is our guest today on the show. He is of the Sports Business Journal of the National Variety, one of the premier sort of entities covering sports media and business nationally. And he's formerly of the state covering South Carolina football and the Masters, one of the greatest beats in the history of all of sports beats. A tradition unlike any other. It is. And he has moved on to the Sports Business Journal. And we're going to talk sort of big picture about the entire future of college football. Sure, it will be through the lens of the SEC. Who's doing NIL correct? Uh, what do we think the playoff expansion is going to look like? How does football drive and influence uh, uh, all the other sports that are played at the collegiate level? What does the future look like? Is the SEC going to take Florida State from the ACC? So lots of fun stuff to get to on the sort of the future of, of, of college football moving forward with Ben Portnoy. After our conversation with Ben, we will have our reaction to the week that was in Titans News, which was a press release detailing the entire power structure of the Tennessee Titans organization and Brian Callahan's introductory press conference. So we'll get to all of that a little bit later on. However, Steve Cavendish of the Nashville Banner, sign up for good journalism, NashvilleBanner.com. Lamestream Sports is brought to you by 8th and Roast. Didn't know where you were going to go with that, but okay. The pa the dramatic pause, uh, little, the pregnant pause. A little okay. a little dramatic pause. Yeah. 8th and Roast. Good people. Very Make good coffee. Brayden, do you know what the difference is between dark and light roast coffee? Oh, I do. The um, light roast has more caffeine, more of what I need. Give it to me. <laughs> Uh, light roast. I mean, light roast comes in. I mean, obviously it's, it's about the roasting, but to your point, they have different characteristics. Lighter has a, is a little fruitier. You can get a medium roast, but then there's the dark roast, which is, is more the, that kind of like that really strong flavors. There's a lot of roasty flavors, a lot of kind of like very bold cocoa and chocolate notes. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's a bolder sort of thing. There are differences in the roast. And so I'm just saying, pay attention to that when you're when you're ordering your coffee, and pay attention and notice the differences. You can even do like a little side by side. Hmm. We call it uh, taste test in the in the in, very creatively and uh, unprecedentedly. We call it taste test in our house, where we'll have like uh -huh. four di four different cheeses or something, and I'll put all four different cheeses, little bites on the kids' plates, and they can they won't know what they are, and they get to try all four of them or pieces of candy or whatever. Like we have fun with like trying to get them to try new stuff. We're not. We definitely don't need to give the five year old any caffeine yet. I was gonna say, are your kid? Your kids are definitely dark roast, aren't they? Yeah. Well, non non calf or decaf or whatever. <laughs> yeah, they need no caffeine. Is what I'm trying to get across here. Uh, it's. So I I will admit, as someone who likes the bolder, darker, richer flavors in general in coffee, I don't like sugar in my coffee. I like a little cream. 
and and eighth and roast coffee beans at the grocery store perfect for that however i'm i am sort of um ashamed to admit that i think i was like 35 years old when i learned that there was more caffeine in the lighter roast <laughs> i was i was significantly older than i think a normal human should be to learn that there's like the darker you go the less caffeine there is which in my brain didn't make any sense for the first 35 years and then my frontal lobe developed and i used the internet and i found out that actually a lighter roast in fact has more caffeine i was not i was not i had always sort of poo-pooed the different methods i was always just sort of uh hey it comes out of the pot there it's coffee right until uh a, a wonderful gentleman named Jack Silverman, the former managing editor of the uh, of the national scene, brought in a pour over contraption to the scene when we were when we were working there, and would do pour overs in the afternoon. And suddenly, you were getting this was not this was not the same stuff that was being brewed at seven a.m. in the no. industrial no. coffee pot downstairs. This was. This was something special that uh, that Jack was doing that was was creating like different flavors and different yep. things coming out of the coffee, and and it's and it's really what made me start thinking about like there are there's this wide variety kind of within the within the coffee world. It's not just hey give me the coffee, and I'm fine with hey give me the coffee, give me the coffee. I'm I'm, I, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be good. I think but, in emergency purposes only, hey give me the coffee is fine. It's it's like drinking sure. the bottom shelf brown water. I'd rather just not drink. Uh, (laughs) which I have no problem with. I'm going to pay a little extra for my bourbon. I think for like an extra, again, I can't imagine like gas station swill versus eighth and roast. It's not even close. And the cost is not even that different. So like you go to eighth and roast. That's the whole point of this conversation is go to eighth and roast. Go to eighth and roast. All right. Here was our conversation coming up. We're going to talk about the new power structure of the Titans, how they disseminated that information, what Rand Carthon and Amy Adams Strunk owe to their audience, their fans, their season ticket holders, and of course, Brian Callahan's introductory press conference. But before we do, uh, here's a conversation with Ben Fortnoy of the Sports Business Journal about all things college football, the future of the sport from a business perspective and a legal perspective uh, with a guy that I've known for a really long time. Great conversation. Here was our chat with Ben Fortnoy. Ben, thank you so much for joining us here today on the show. We do appreciate your time. How are you, sir? I'm good. Appreciate you guys having me. This is fun. It's always always good to catch up. So excited to uh, excited to talk a little bit here. So for those that do not know, and I've told you this many many times, uh, Ben, but for those that do not know, I think you had the best beat maybe in all of America. You were covering SEC football and the Masters for the state down in South Carolina. Arguably the best beat in the history of human sports, and you chose to leave that to go cover NIL legal mumbo jumbo at the sports business journal. Uh, explain yourself why you felt like this was the right move for you, why you wanted to go from covering the sec in the South and college football to sort of more of a national approach, but the business and media side of things, which is very, very different from like RPOs and the air raid. <laughs> yeah, definitely different. Uh, you know, I, as the master's commercials come on like this time of year, I definitely get a little bit of I'm like, dang, like I'm not going to get to go this year. It's it's a little bit of a bummer. But um, no, you know, I think for me, like I've always kind of had it as a goal or a dream or whatever you want to call it to, to do something at a national level. And I think this was that. And certainly, uh, you know, it's a crazy time in college sports on a lot of levels. And I think that, you know, so much, I think, whether you talk to people in the industry, outside of it, fans, whatever, I think there's a more 
maybe a better understanding at a base level, just like how intertwined money and business is with college sports these days. And I think that, you know, it's only gotten more that way, I think, over time uh, as the price tags have gone up, particularly on college football side. Uh, and I think that, you know, for me, it was a chance to dive into something new and unique. And, and I think that, you know, certainly there's moments where you think like, oh, man, I'm going from going from one sport or excuse me, one sport in one school to, you know, every sport in every school. It's a little bit like, oh, my God, what did I get myself into? But no, it's it's definitely a little uh, it's definitely been really cool and really crazy and all of the above. I mean, it's it's a crazy time in college sports and uh, certainly don't have a uh, <laughs> I have enough to write about for sure. It keeps me plenty busy. So, so what's your actual kind of remit here? Is it anything attached to money uh, and college <laughs> sports or is it, how, how do, how do you, how does your, how do your editors kind of look at what you do? Yeah, I think that look, like, I think follow the money is usually a pretty good way to, uh, to go through stories. Now for me, I think like, I think the way I approach it is is maybe different than others. And I think that, you know, it's easy to write a lot of numbers and a lot of fancy jargon and things like that, but it's harder to humanize that. And I think that, you know, that's been sort of my goal. I think that, you know, I've found, I've tried to find a nice medium of, of marrying the two. I think that, you know, I, it'll come out in the next couple of days, but, you know, I wrote a story about Nick Saban and his impact on the college football ecosystem. And it's, you know, not so much about, you know, his impact on coaches or people or things like that, but more about like the business of college sports. And one of them being like creating this analyst role basically out of nowhere. And there's a cool anecdote in there about kind of the genesis of that and how it literally came to be as kind of a, a lucky thing. And it's obviously evolved into something totally different. But um, so I think that, you know, taking stuff like that and sort of extrapolating it out into sort of broader picture um, things, I think has been helpful. I think certainly attaching a price tag to things helps. Um, but you know, again, like, I think that so much of this stuff is intertwined now, uh, whether it's Congress, whether it's NIL, whether it's recruiting, whether it's college football, basketball, baseball, whatever. I mean, it's all so intertwined. I think that it's, uh, it's made the transition easier, I would say. Well, it's funny. It's like the the old school way of looking at Nick Saban's impact is like, well, look, the business side of this, I mean, is well, look at applications are increased, right? Like student applications have increased. Therefore, we can be more selective with our student body population. Therefore, we can hire better um, teachers and professors. And so like there, there is even more financial impact than just the athletic department, ticket sales, you know, buildings in, on campus, et cetera. But the new way of looking at football through this NIL and, and national lens with Congress and all the other stuff you need to know about now is that it affects uh, so many more sports. You've already alluded to how much more you have to cover than just football. When we talk about it as fans, football is the front porch of the university. It is 95% of what people care about as fans of the sport. But everything else seems to be so much more affected by all of this stuff. How much of your focus and study of all these issues is football-driven, but you have to then understand the effects of it on everything else? Yeah, I think it's it's a really good point. I think it's an it's one that I think I grapple with, fight with, whatever you know, most days because I think that, and, and I talk to a lot of people in the business about this, and you know, sources or otherwise, like football is driving the bus on all of this, right? Like football is the reason that the ACC is going to have Stanford, Cal, and, and SMU, but it's also the sport that's probably least affected by these things in the sense of you're playing one game a week. Like you're going to be on the road six or seven weeks out of the year. It's going to be, you know, a couple of days at a time. It's sort of the the easiest schedule to manage out of all of those things. 
but it's the one that's throwing every other sport in America into chaos. And I think that that's an interesting dynamic where you kind of try to look at the trickle down effect of it. Right. And I think like I, and others certainly like it's easy to narrow in on football. And I think rightfully so, just because football is the thing that's driving the bus. It's where all the money is. It's what's creating. It's sort of, it is the sort of change, change agent in all of this. But I do think that there is a trickle down effect. And I mean, we talk about it all the time and there's always, you know, everyone's kind of posed the hypotheticals, right? Like what's going to happen when Washington has to play Rutgers on a Wednesday night in volleyball? Like, you know, like, what are you going to do or how are you going to schedule this out? Like, what are we going to do here? And I think that, you know, we're nearing that reality, right? Like that's going to happen at some point in the next year, like, or two years, whatever it is. And I think that it's a really interesting proposition. And I think it, you know, a lot of folks in college sports will say, Hey, we're doing this all for student athlete health. Like, I mean, the reality is, is like, you're not, and it's for the money. And I think that that's just kind of the reality that we live in. Right. And I think that, you know, football money has driven the, driven the bus on so much of this stuff. And I think that it's created chaos for every other sport in America when you look at it. And I think we're going to hear, you know, not to say horror stories, but like, you're going to hear crazy stories about the travel and all of that, that's going to come with this. Uh, and I think it becomes harder and harder to say like, Hey, these kids are students, athletes, like, the reality is they're athletes who also attend school. The the interesting calculus for me is what presidents and even even athletic directors, although they weren't necessarily in those decisions to for for, for instance, uh Cal and Stanford to join <laughs> to join essentially what is a nationwide conference now. Um they the money for college football is so much bigger than anything else. But kind of what is the have you have you talked to anybody that's talked about sort of like the calculus of of just that thing of we have volleyball teams we're going to send we we have baseball teams we're going to and softball and and basketball that we're going to send all over the place and weighing that out versus uh, versus a thirty five or forty million dollar bump in revenue for those for those Pac twelve schools that weren't going to that weren't going to really get much. Uh, has has anybody is anybody willing to talk about those trade-offs yet probably not but i think that i would say no mostly but i think that there's privately at least an understanding of like this is all messed up like there's no good way to go about this and i think that everyone's kind of accepted we kind of have to deal with this for the time being until we get to something better and i think that that's you know if there's a silver lining and it's probably a fairly like nebulous silver lining but i do think that Ultimately, like not to say this stuff is going to work itself out, but I do think that at some point you're going to have consolidation, right? Like you're going to have whatever the number becomes 30, 40, 50, 60 teams that play major college football and sort of break off into this sort of perceived super league or whatever you want to call it. And then ultimately all the other conferences can go back to doing what they were doing regionally and sort of get out of this nationwide mess that they've created because of football. And I think that like, you're going to have a few years and maybe it's five years, maybe it's 10 years of, of craziness where you've got, you know, again, like the soccer team crisscrossing the country or the baseball team or whatever. But I do think that like at some point there's going to have to be something different because football is going to end up being its own thing. I think probably in some capacity. Now what that looks like is a whole other discussion that we could probably spend six hours discussing. But um, I, I do think that like at some point you've got to, At some point, I do think football is going to have to get treated differently, whether it's by the NCAA, whether it's by Congress, whether it's by schools, whatever. Um, And I think that eventually, like whenever that consolidation happens, it'll ultimately be really good for all the other sports because you'll basically be able to go back to operating business as usual. 
Well, let's skip the entire six hours and I'll just jump right to the end um, <laughs> because you've already alluded to it. Like you said, when we get to something different or this breakaway and like it's going to happen, the ACC grant of rights eventually will run out. I'm going to ask you about uh, Florida State's emotional uh, lawsuit, but um, let's skip the whole six hours because I agree with you. It could be that long, but let's get right to 50 teams. Pick a number. They are a full scale employees. There's HR. There is uh, workman's comp. There is collective bargaining agreements. There's revenue sharing. That is how it works. To your point, it benefits every other sport to go back to the regional sort of traveling so that the parents can see things. It makes sense ac academically, et cetera. Like that is the the only, like my question is not how does this end? The question is when does it get to that point ultimately? Uh, and is that is that oh, is it smart to tie that to essentially all these TV contracts for all these big leagues are coming up in the early 2030s. The grant of rights for the ACC is 2036, but could they buy out a couple of years early and tie it in with all this other stuff? Is that the right way to look at this? I think so. I mean, I think that like, I forget who I asked this. It was a, it was a power five AD, but I can't remember exactly who it was now, but um, you know, basically made the point of like, look, like when you look at this stuff and when these things have happened, it's always, uh, this is over the course of 20 years now at this point, like, the shakeup and and the realignment and all of this stuff has happened basically whenever TV deals are up. And I know that that creates angst amongst fans who are like, you know, hey, ESPN's running college football, which like is not totally the case. It's not not the case, but it's also not totally the case. Like it's it's complicated, right? Um, there's there's three but, other net there's three other networks working with ESPN, <laughs> right? Like you know, Fox and CBS and NBC Sports are all involved yeah, in this. Yeah. And like, yeah, so are they all conspiring to destroy college football? Probably not. They're all conspiring to make money, which is, you know, that's what businesses do, and I get it. So whatever. That, that's Again, that's another conversation. But um, I, I do think that, I, look, like, these things are probably going to be tied to TV deals. Like you kind of alluded, like, these things are going to be up in 2030-ish. You know, is it going to be five years of chaos till then? Probably. Is something going to be resolved sooner than that? Potentially. But I think that... You know, these things have always been kind of tied to TV deals when they've been up, when they've been renegotiated, things like that. The Big Ten's a good example, right? Like the Washington, Oregon, US, USC and UCLA ads are, are all kind of tied to this most recent uh, TV deal in some level. Um, so I think that that's probably when you would see something happen. Now that's forecasting out a little bit. Could something happen sooner? Could you cut a deal? Maybe like if the NCAA loses the house case, which, you know, I, I think that they probably will and have to set or create some kind of settlement for all of these college athletes that could be in the billions. First of all, the NCAA can't bankroll that right off the bat. Uh, and I think that creates a whole host of other issues before we even get to the idea of super conferences and things like that. Well, that's where the TV money comes in, <laughs> but they're not. But they're not allowed to tell the conferences who they might like in expansion. That's not that they're not allowed to do that. So that's right. That's right. It's sort of like the he he who shall not be named, right? For all the Harry Potter yes. fans out there. <laughs> when when we get to the end of this decade, uh, me me ask you to kind of do a little pr prognostication here. Uh, when we get to the end to the end of the decade here, and these TV deals start sunsetting. Um, is the NCAA a bigger player or a smaller player in terms of the future and the business? I would say like the first thing I'm going to need at the end of this decade is a drink or six because of all that's going on. But like, I will say that, you know, what's going on. I, that's a really good question to, to, to actually address your question. I, I do think that's a really good question. I think that the NCAA, I mean, look, like, Everyone says, and I think this is a this is an interesting thing where everyone says, hey, we want to blow up the NCAA. We want to get rid of it. We hate it. We hate the people there, whatever. 
the reality is that no one in college football really wants to govern themselves, right? Like that creates outsourcing this whole other system that certainly you could create it, but you've already basically got the bones of it at the NCAA already. So the point is, is like, why create this whole other thing, whether it's the college football playoff or, you know, college football governance company over here to the side, um, you know, why create something that you've kind of already got the pieces to address with the NCAA? Now, to like actually address your question, do I think the NCAA loses some power and, and sort of oversight on some of this stuff? Yeah, I do. I, I think that, you know, it's kind of gone that way. I think that certainly the NCAA hasn't done a lot to boost its public opinion. Now, I will say Charlie Baker, I think, largely has done a pretty good job in his first, yeah. you know, 12 months on the job. And I think that, you know, I don't know if it's a 10 out of 10, but it might be an eight or nine out of 10. Like he's, he's been active. He's been out front. I think some of that's, some of that's out of his, out of his own volition. Some of it's out of, you know, college football, need, college sports needs something to get resolved. So someone has to be the adult in the room and deal with it. And I think Charlie Baker's done a really good job of that uh, to his credit. So not to totally denigrate the NCAA and say they're, you know, it's a, it's a shell of itself and all that. Like, I, I do think that there are people there who are working to try and get these things resolved, but I do think that, is there a world where you could have the college football player playoff govern its own itself? Sure. Like, could you have it break off and become a professional model and say like, Hey, college football incorporated is what college football is. And they're going to create all the rules and the free agency rules and all of that stuff. And the NCAA is going to be outside of that realm. Like, yeah, that could happen. Do I see it happening by the end of the decade? Not necessarily. I, I just think that, again, I think that the governance structure is in place on some level in the NCAA to deal with these things. It's just that it's been so kind of mismanaged and haphazardly handled over such a long time that it's put us in a situation that we're in, right, that the college sports are in. And I think that, you know, even recently, right, like the Florida State stuff that Alex Atkins, the offensive coordinator, got slapped for a few, what, a month ago, if that. And it probably was like two weeks ago. It all, it all feels like a month ago or two months ago, but it was like two weeks ago. Um you know, got slapped for NIL violations and setting up a meeting with uh, a collective uh, on the side with a recruit. That happened, the event itself happened in 2022. And in basically the same few days that the NCAA punished Florida State for this and punished Alex Atkins for that, they basically motioned to try and get rid of the exact <laughs> rule that they punished him for. And it's kind of yeah. like, you throw up your hands and you're like, guys, what are we doing here? You know, and, and I think that that, you know, to, to your point of does the NCAA lose some of its gusto and power? Like, I think it's stuff like that that certainly doesn't help. And I get it. Like these investigations take time, but uh, things like that certainly undercut, uh, I think, the NCAA itself at its knees. See, now we're right back into the middle of the six hour conversation. It's 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 going to end with its own entity. Uh, I tried to jump to the end. To, to your To your point, though, Ben, I think it is tethered loosely to the NCAA in some way, shape, or form. Their brand is just not strong enough for people to even trust it at this point. But I will say it's a whole lot easier to govern, manage, and operate when they are employees that you can put in the contract what they are supposed to do. I don't know, like play in a bowl game. Uh, and and it's only two conferences to manage, and it's only 50 teams. That's a lot easier than you know 12 conferences, 11 conferences, and 135 teams uh, with that are playing largely different sports. So again, I think... I think the end of this is fairly obvious. Uh, it's just a matter of how and and when we get there. You mentioned Florida State. Uh, look, there are there are people that have so many more law degrees than the three of us combined that have been trying to get out of the ACC contract for years. Certainly, Florida State filing the lawsuit right after getting left out of the playoff feels like a largely emotional play by a fan base that's pissed off. Understandably so. 
but what is the like? Is this is there anything to be like seen or had with this lawsuit? You you already kind of alluded to maybe it could happen earlier than the early twenty thirties. I, I don't know. I it strikes me as if it was going to happen or if it was possible, it would have already happened by now. Um, or do you, th- do you like what, what's the end game for Florida State and maybe even Clemson, I guess, Miami, North Carolina, whoever else might be voting with Florida State to disband the grant of rights? Yeah, look, like I don't think Florida State's the only school in the ACC that's exploring their options. And I don't mean that to say like, hey, North Carolina is going to leave the league tomorrow. I don't mean it like that. But I do think that like there are schools that. I think are keeping an eye open and and looking at what Florida state's doing. And I think that frankly, Florida state's a little bit of a Guinea pig in this whole thing. And that, yeah, they're the vocal sort of outspoken middle child of the whole thing. But uh, you know, there are certainly others who are a little bit quieter and probably keeping tabs on what's going on. And I don't think they're alone. And I think that's across college sports, not just in the ACC. Right. Um, But I do think that, yeah, look, I'm not a lawyer. I can, I, I can, understand some of this and I can read the legal briefs over and over again. I I, I don't know exactly, but I think that, um, I, 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 look, I think like to me personally, and again, like I'm not a lawyer, but to me, the standing in this kind of case feels like, Hey, we signed a crappy deal and we want out of it. Like that feels like the basic legal argument. And that's an oversimplification. And that's, you know, me being a poli sci minor in college coming out, I guess, or something like that. But so again, like my deep rooted understanding of these things is not, is not particularly deep, but, um, but I do think like there is, look, there's a conversation to be had of what, what, what happens with Florida state if they're not able to get out of the grant of rights, are they going to continue to create a fit over the next few years? Are they going to create problems? Whatever. I, I think that's fair. I think the other question becomes, and I think it's the question that doesn't get asked enough is where do they go? Because I, I think that, Look, there are leagues that would scoop them up and and I get it. You know, I, I, I think that there's a lot of value there. But, you know, I I had this explained to me by someone in, in, in so many words that, look, if you're the SEC and you look at what Florida State's doing and saying and all of that, what's to stop them from, let's say, let's say the SEC in three years or this lawsuit goes Florida State's way, they get out of the ACC and the SEC scoops them up in two years or whatever that happens, Right. Like, what's to stop Florida State from creating the same mess and these same issues of saying, hey, we want a bigger cut than whatever, Mississippi State and Ole Miss, in three years in the SEC, right? It's sort of like welcoming the snake into your garden. And I think that there's a little bit of concern with that. And I think that that's why when you look at some of these other schools that, you know, I think a lot of us tie to realignment, right? North Carolina's one, Virginia's one that gets thrown around a lot, Miami. Um, you know, there's schools that have been maybe, I don't know, for lack of a better term, quieter about their business. Uh And I think that, and sort of their intentions. And I think that, you know, that plays better, frankly. Like, I think that Florida State has put themselves in this corner where they've kind of put themselves in this place where they're going to fall on the sword. They're going to create an uproar. And I get some of it. Look, like, they've got public record laws and things like that where a lot of these hearings have to be public, which, you know, for us creates lots of really fun moments. But for Florida State uh, benefactors is probably not the most ideal thing, which, you know, fair. You can't do this under, you know, cover of darkness, cloak and dagger, all that. But, um, but I do think that again, like I, I just, I don't get, I, I, this is answering your question in a long way of saying, I don't know what the end goal here is because I think that ultimately, like I have a hard time believing that this case one is going to get them out of the ACC and two, like at a base level, like my understanding and, and, you know, and legal folks that I've talked to, like, I'm not sure this case is even going to get heard in Tallahassee. And if it's not heard in Tallahassee, yeah. They're probably not going to get a favorable ruling from a judge in Charlotte um, or Mecklenburg County where the ACC headquarters are. So, like, 
again, I, I just I have a hard time seeing this get further than a lot of sort of more saber rattling from uh, Florida State. Well, they're the they're the finger in the dam. If it if if they go, there'll be a lot of teams that that go through that hole. But here's the question: Can you answer this? I have been told that the grant of rights, specifically the actual document, cannot be viewed unless you have like a member of the ACC office like with you in the headquarters. Am I wrong about this? Like. Like, that is my understanding and my under, like I don't know about you guys like I kind of envision this like the 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 little idol at the beginning of Indiana Jones like you got to yes. jump through you know you got to jump through like 16 different you know movie traps in order Florida to state thing level, like you have you know, to remove a statue of you have to remove a statue of John Swafford Florida <laughs> right. State lawyers going running out of the building and a giant rock is following them. But like all right. these schools have copies of it, right? But it, it's so weird. It's just so weird how it's uh, anyway Carry right, on. like if I turn up with like a you know a poison dart in my neck, that's because I've been <laughs> gotten too close to the grant of rights. I guess or something like that. Like that's just you know you guys know where to find me, right? This is so my I'm, I'm backing myself up here. Yeah, so absurd. I mean, so so you were you were poly sci minor. I was poly sci major. We both became journalists, and I think I think everybody in this everybody who kind of like headed down that path uh, at one point looked at law school, thought about law school, scale of one to 10. How much do you wish you had <laughs> law school in your rearview mirror right now to do your job? Like 13. Um, <laughs> so I think that it's the, no, it's a funny story. Actually, if you guys want to laugh is, you know, my, my dad's a lawyer and has spent a long time in the private practice and all of that, but it's like become this fun thing, but back and forth where when I get sent a legal brief, I'll send it to him just to look over it and be like, Hey, am I reading this right? Am I crazy? Like, just give me some kind of legal idea on what I'm, I'm looking at here. And, you know, it's not necessarily for publication versus like actually just my own understanding on things, but it's far as like, uh, but it is funny, like having a few friends too, that are lawyers and have gone to law school and stuff like that. Like it is helpful to, uh, to have some folks who really know what they're looking at and reading. And, you know, certainly I can do my best sort of, you know, poli sci impression of what I'm reading, but uh yeah, law school probably would have been really beneficial. That or business school, one of the two. Either way, and that's not to dissuade anyone from being a journalism major, but there are things that I probably should have taken a class or two in here or there that uh, probably would have benefited me here or there. Well being being a lawyer, <laughs> it's, it's all about writing as well and reading. So there you go. It's there's some overlap there. Um just just take accounting and contracts. Just just do that. No matter that's what it. You that's do. all I need, really. I, well you guys I'm skipping all of that. I'm teaching my daughters uh just HTML and Mandarin. That's it. Um that's what I'm teaching them. Uh so <laughs> so I, I want to ask you from an NIL collective standpoint, is it fair for us and we'll just focus on the SEC for the sake of this conversation? Is it fair to look at the the obvious things that are happening and then just make the assumption that they are functioning better on the back end, that the infrastructure is better on the back end? Tennessee's recruiting very well. They're getting guys out of the portal. Ole Miss is recruiting extremely well. We know A&M has been doing a great job. Uh, Texas has had a, a, a really excellent job with NIL once they kind of got off, once Texas as a state got off the ground and, and running. Missouri, we know, is using it extremely well. Maybe Alabama and Auburn are a little slower on the uptick. Kentucky a little slower on the uptick. Is it fair to just look at the player movement and say, those are the people that are doing it well? Or do you have, is there more insight into who's doing this right or wrong? Because for the first time, as you've already alluded to, the NCAA is starting to put some some guardrails as, as, as much as they can on some of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that, the combination of NIL and the transfer portal has been good 
for a number of folks as far as I think Ole Miss is a perfect example, right? Places that have been able to, or Tennessee even, right? Places that can get organized, that can get money behind them, their, their product basically, uh, and put those things into practice quickly. And I think that that has helped in when you talk about sort of the parity of college football, right? And I think this year was a great example, right? This year we had a four-team playoff, but like there were what, eight, nine teams that were in the mix for it until the last week or two weeks of the season. And I think that that's a nice precursor to kind of what we'll see with the 12-team playoff. And I think that that's, you know, we're headed for more of that, right? And I think that's generally actually a good thing. Like, Despite our best efforts to destroy college football, I, I do think that the 12 team playoff is actually probably a good thing as far as just like everyone's going to have a chance. You're going to have a chance to get into the field, G5 schools, power five schools, whatever. Like, I think there's generally some good there that will help with the actual on field parity of all of this. Um, as far as NIL, I, I do think that, like, look, there are schools that have done a better job about it. There are schools that have been quicker to adjust to it. And I think that you've seen that in sort of the way that they've been able to manage their rosters and pull guys in. I use Ole Miss as a good example. Uh, like you said, Texas, as they've gotten off the ground, Missouri's done a really good job. Uh, there are others, too. And I think that, you know, there are others that have kind of taken their time to come along and, and things like that, but have gotten in better places. South Carolina is a good example that took a little bit of time to get get going, but has gotten themselves into a better position and there's more cash you know, cash flow positive right now than, than they would be otherwise or had been in the past. And so, you know, you look at those things and I do think that it's a combination of you've got programs in the SEC that are all, you know, operating at like high, high, high college football levels of, you know, operation period. Um, I think that you've got places that are desperate to win too. And I think that you combine those things and, and with boosters that they're deep pocketed and depends on the place, certainly. And there, there are obviously going to be places that have more money than others. But I, I do think that that because of what the SEC is and, and the way that it operates and has for so long, I, I just think that like the SEC for the most part has done a really good job. And, and that's not to say there aren't other places that have done a good job. I mean, look, look what Florida state's done in the transfer portal. Right. Um, you know, Oregon. there are other Oregon's a good example. Right. Um, there are places that have done a really good job in the NIL front that are outside the SEC for sure. Um, but I do think that, you know, because of what the SEC ecosystem is, it's sort of, it's sort of adapt or die. Right. And I think that for the most part, SEC schools have adapted and, you know, uh, Vanderbilt's its own thing, but they've uh, you know done what they can too. Who's the worst in the SEC in your opinion at, at all of this besides, I mean, Vander- I besides Vanderbilt? I mean, I would say like Vanderbilt's obviously the easy choice just because they're so disadvantaged. And I've ever, I, I read someone else make this point. I can't remember who it is. So I'm totally butchering, you know, crediting who said it, but like that Clark Lee basically took a job that has totally changed in the one and a half years that he took it basically. And, uh, and now it's going on what year three or four, but like in the year, first year and a half that he was on that job, the job totally changed with NIL and all that stuff. And it just puts a school like Vanderbilt at a total disadvantage. Um, you know, like, look, it, this is the thing that I always come back to. And I think that, and like, I, I've had this exact conversation with a handful of power five athletic directors. And I think it's funny because I think it's interesting to see how people react to it. And it's that it's twofold. It's one, the people who are upset about college athletes being paid. The reality is, is college athletes have been being paid under the table for a hundred years. And it's like the worst kept secret in college football. And we can all kind of stop clutching our pearls about it because it's kind of a ridiculous conversation on the outset. Um, I mean, look, like I use the example, Bear Bryant got in trouble with the Southwest Conference for paying players at, at Texas A&M in like the 50s, 60s. Like this is not a new issue. Right. Um, that said, <laughs> that's a that's a separate soapbox. But um, the other part of this is like, look, there's always been inequities in what schools have as far as finances and resources and things like that. Right. Like. Look, Alabama is always probably going to spend two or three times what Mississippi State does. Now, they used to spend it on fancy locker rooms and facilities and things like that so they could recruit and ultimately land players. 
you're just expediting the process here. <laughs> you're paying a player for, instead of, you know, going through all the other hoops to get a player to come to campus, right? Like, like again, Alabama's budget is always going to be bigger than Mississippi State. Georgia's budget is always going to be bigger than whatever, you know, Vanderbilt, right? Like, these are just, like, realities of the sport. And I think that they've taken different forms, and those inequities have been sort of exacerbated in different ways because it's now more direct, and we're not playing the game of, like, hey, I need, like, a locker, a seat in my locker that folds down into a bed, a sleeping pod or whatever. You might need that too, but like, you know, we're, we're taking that money and saying, <laughs> Hey, here, I'm going to pay a quarterback instead of, you know, building out this giant facility or fancy thing. That's going to convince a kid to come here. And certainly there's still that, but again, like, I think that it's, that's a long winded way of saying, like, I think that the inequities that existed previously still exist. It's just a matter of, um, yeah. you know, it, it's just a different form. I, I was, I was pretty fascinated to see a report out that Netflix and the parent company for UFC, WCW, or WWE um, had had reached a $5 billion deal over 10 years. And there's going to be some live, uh, there's going to be some live components to that. Uh, What do you think about streamers and getting into college sports? And do you think that that's, do do you think that that is kind of the next phase for reviewers or for uh, or for uh, conferences and and athletic departments? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we talked about it before we hopped on, right, with the RSNs and and what's going on in in Nashville with with the Preds and everything else. But I, I do think that I think that streamers are in an interesting point because, like. I mean, it's pretty well documented that Amazon, Amazon, documented that Amazon and Apple were kind of, sort of involved in the Pac-12 media rights discussions, things like that. Um, you know, now will they make a major play? I don't know. I mean, I think that look, like the big issue that you run into, and I think this exists with, uh, we're really talking about college football and college and the NFL right. largely, is that the networks that sort of control those rights, ESPN, NBC, Fox, CBS, right, like they've still got capabilities that I think streamers are still figuring out. Um, now for a sport, like I, I this is a bad example because they just signed with CBS yesterday, but or two days ago, but like pickleball, right. Could they go on a streamer or something like that? Like professional pickleball, could they go find some, a streamer to pay them, you know, X number of dollars to, to figure out a way to get them on, on the airwaves or, you know, the internet waves, I should say, or whatever we want, or what we want to call it these days. Um, you know, that, that probably makes more sense, but I think that like for an, uh, uh, there is still there are still enough people watching through linear cable. I think that those things are still valuable to have those major networks behind them. Um, and you look at something like ESPN, and I think that this is um, you know it's kind of a separate thing. But like you look at the media rights deal the NCAA just signed with ESPN uh, just a few mo- weeks ago um, about women's basketball and sort of the Olympic sports and everything else. The reality is, is there were other networks involved and wanting to to be a part of that conversation but the problem is is, is shelf shelving like where are you going to put it and i think there's still an espn is a good example of espn3 or watch espn whatever we're calling it, you know watch espn espn.com right um espn plus i should say um that is still something that no other network has and can like take on the inventory that, that, that a package like that entails. So if you're not going to spin off and say, Hey, we're going to put women's basketball, volleyball and baseball and all the good stuff in one package, you know, yeah. Could CBS or NBC or whoever take yeah. that on or the streamer take that on? Certainly like that, that makes sense. Um, 
but it's all the other stuff and all the other sort of uh, uh, of the all the other programming that I think there's only certain places that can take it on. And I think that that's why you see the networks exist in the way that they do. Now, again, could streamers jump into that and build something out like like an ESPN plus for sure. Like that, that could happen in a few years for sure. But like, I do think it's an interesting point. Very women, interesting. Women's basketball took less money for that deal, frankly, uh, to, to make sure they got access to, to viewers in, in, in theory. Right. It's an interesting conversation of like, what's the actual value? I think that like, look, I mean, I think that there's a lot of people who will say women's basketball should have gotten more money, right? Or you should have spun off women's basketball. I think, you know, the fear, at least in my conversations with folks involved with it, was if you take, let's say you take women's basketball, volleyball, baseball, softball out and package that as its own thing and you get maybe more money per unit um, than you would with with the whole package, right? Um, the problem is, is then who's going to pay for the rest of the package? Is it like you're taking all the, the other stuff, right? Does that stuff ultimately then just sit on a shelf somewhere? Or does it run on the NCAA.com and no one's really watching it? Or like, what, what are you doing with all that? It's the farm bill question in, in yeah. Congress. You, you put you put subsidies and, and, yeah. and kind of food aid and whatever else to all together. Yeah. And like if the, you take all the good stuff out, are you diluting the other stuff? The 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 one thing the one thing about that that deal I mentioned that was was really interesting to me was that you know Netflix has eighty point five million subscribers here in the U.S., uh, which is just sort of that's to your point that's not that's not Peacock, uh, you know, bogarting a a a, a playoff game. That's it's, that, that's that is ESPN that cable is, subscriber numbers. <laughs> yeah, that that's Almost exactly identically. what that is. Yeah. And, yeah. And, I, and, I, and I, and I wonder if, if like, if like they're the player that, that has the ability to get to, to get to that because they have the, because they have the, 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 just the, the, the breadth. Yeah. I, I think that like Netflix is one that's interesting because they've obviously shown an interest in sports and some of their production side of things. Right. Like you've looked at, I mean, as a golf fan, like the full swing stuff, right. Or, or drive to survive and, you know, break point and some of these other like, documentary series that they've done as well untold a lot of these like, like like there's been an interest in doing sports stuff in-house now whether that extends to live sports we'll see um but i do think that there's I, I think that like you're right like netflix has probably the bandwidth and the the subscriber base to do something like that now could prime do something like, right like we've seen prime handle nfl games and things like that um is there a world where you could have you know, a one-off big 10 game or sec game or whatever on a streamer. Like, obviously these are, you know, contracts that have been written out for a long time, but is that something that could be written in at some point? Sure. Like, I think that's interesting. And I think that there's, I think there will be a place for streamers at some point. And I think that, you know, I'm totally speculating here and just kind of throwing ideas out, but like, look, if you get a 50 team super league, what's going to happen to all those other games and like the Mac and the G five and all of that, like, is that a place that streamers can jump in and say, Hey, we'll pay you whatever, a hundred million dollars. Like I think the CU is it the, the AAC's deal is for about a hundred million dollars a year, give or take, um, you know, is could Netflix jump in and say, Hey, we'll pay you whatever, $115 million a year, give everyone a little bit of an extra cut, uh, and stick you on Netflix and send you out to our 85 million subscribers and see what's what. Like, I, I think that's a place where that could be a really interesting and, and put a tournament and put a tournament in place that is separate and take the leftovers that don't make it into the top league. You take the the leftovers from the top, and you take the best of the lower tier. You put them together in the second tier. You put a tournament together, and Amazon has two hundred million subscribers worldwide. So, Nef and Netflix is our, or sorry, Amazon does. 
And Amazon has already done the live thing. They've already proven that they can do the live thing. Whereas Netflix has had some questions about their. You don't, you, their... You don't, you don't like you don't like Mountain West and chill or AAC I do. and chill. I, <laughs> I do. I think Listen, we, like, need, we need no, to replace Pac-12 After Dark, so we need some yes. something. <laughs> well, it'll be Big Twelve After Dark for now on the on the actual cable networks. But I think ultimately the reason. That there is this like passion and love of like the the next tier down in college football, and sim- to me, it is very similar to the MLS. It is not the best soccer that you can watch, but Apple bought all of it. And if you can create a second tier that has, again, I think it needs to have a playoff, and I think it needs to have a championship, and there needs to be some stakes. But if you can take all the things that people loved about college football, the charm and sort of the weird oddities of the the gray fields and the red fields and the blue fields, and like take all of that stuff put it into one place and then own all of it. That is where to me, a streamer can benefit because then it's like, well, no, if I don't want to watch Alabama versus Ohio state every weekend, which everyone's going to watch. That's a casual, but if you're a diehard, you can watch. And again, I'll, you know, maybe it's app state, maybe it's Tulane. Maybe, you know, there's bring there's me pro- the Kibby dome. Yeah. Like there's people love this stuff. There's little communities of, of these, these fan bases. And I, I think you have to do something to make it more interesting, but I think if you did it all and put it all in one place, I think there'd be a lot of people like, oh yeah, I'm watching, you know, whatever division two, whatever you want to call it, whatever the second tier down would be on Amazon Prime. I think people would do that. I think. I think to that point, actually, you know, it's funny. I was talking to Austin Carp, who's kind of our SBJ's like ratings guru, and I think he has a really good pulse on this thing. But we were talking about it in the context of the media rights deal with the NCAA signed a few a few weeks ago or a month ago, whatever it was. Um the FCS football title game is a great example of this, right? Like that's a game that, yeah, not, a, you know, some people sort of roll their eyes and they're like, okay, who cares? It's the FCS football title. That game does over a million viewers pretty much every year. Like it, it, like it gets viewers. And I think that in what we're talking about, right? Like if you stick Miami, Ohio and Ohio on, on a Tuesday night in crappy weather, like, hell yeah, I'm signing up to watch that. And I think I'm not alone. And, you know, whether I have issues related to that, that's a separate discussion probably, but like, <laughs> you know, I still think like there are people who are going to sign up to watch that. And I think that like, look, yes, like will the quality of play maybe dip for if you have more people playing in a super league and will more of the talent go toward those leagues? Um, sure. Like the product probably won't be as good, but like it's still college football. And the reality is, is like yep. people in this country and the NFL has capitalized on this. Like people will watch football all year long, 365, whatever like it's it's going i i think that there's a a real play here for it and i think that again like like i said with the scs title like yeah it's a it's a lower level thing but like you're still getting over a million viewers pretty much every time it goes on the air for the title game and i know that's a title game but like i think you can have something similar with the g5 if it ends up on a streamer or something like that hbcu stuff as well like i don't think that's out of the question either so uh thank you so much ben austin carp by the way friend of the pod uh austin carp there so no ben thank you so much for for your time in uh congrats on the move uh appreciate all the work you're doing and go you know uh, best of luck in your legal class classes at night your night classes (laughs) best of luck I appreciate it, guys. Yeah, if there's any uh, if there's any uh, law school uh, admissions folks listening, give me a shout. (laughs) Thanks, dude. Thanks, guys. That was Ben Portnoy of the Sports Business Journal. I, I don't know what, like I don't. It's not a normal path to go from covering Shane Beamer to uh, covering Congress. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's not a normal trajectory. 
Uh, but I'm not going to lie. I his he's had two of my favorite beats as a college football nerd to cover South Carolina and the Masters, and then to go cover the business of college football is I, I absolutely you know he's he's a great writer, good reporter, and then I hope some insight we got there from from him about the future of the game, which again. I, I think it's pretty obvious to the, anybody who's listening to Ben or to us or to anyone smart about this stuff. Uh, it seems like employment status and revenue sharing is coming. So, yeah, it, it it definitely is. And and I was really glad to your point that Sports Business Journal is kind of invested in just covering the business of college sports because in, in past years it would have been bowl revenue, it would have been you know coaching salaries and and whatever and and to to what what Ben was talking about, just kind of a, like a, just, just a numbers game. And it, the, the level of complexity in, in this as a business enterprise has grown dramatically <laughs> to Clark, to the, to your point about Clark Lee in the last three years, to the point that, you know, you have, you have college programs, big time college football programs that are essentially, that, that are essentially running businesses in a very complex way. Yep. It ain't just all about the fo- the football anymore. No, no, never really has been. Uh, not since the not since the advent of the championship game. That's why 1998 is viewed as such an important line of demarcation. Is the championship game money changed hands? The internet evolved into a recruiting monster. All of it changed around the turn of the century, and that is why the game is so different today. Go look at like assistant coaching salaries in like 1996. It will upset yeah. you. It will upset you because there there there's a bunch of them making like two million dollars now. Uh, in college football. So, uh, all right. So before we get to our conversation about uh, the Titans, thanks, by the way, to Ben for joining us, giving us a few minutes of his time. Great follow on Twitter. Uh, excellent reporter. So go read. And by the way, give a little subscription to the Sports Business Journal. It is worth it. If you like this show, you're probably going to appreciate what they do. So go go check them out. Before we do, of course, Slave Stream Sports brought to you by... Eighth. And Roast. It's so awkward. I don't, I, I, I don't, so I don't awkward. know what this bit is. I just, just don't know what the this pause is. is so awkward, <laughs> but memorable, right? It, yeah, absolutely. Eight. I mean, it's it's memorable when you when you when you hear it and you go, "What the fuck is Steve doing?" And oh, roast. It's and roast. <laughs> you uh, remember it? That's true. Roast. That's true. It's eighth Good. and roast. Also, they have locations on Charlotte at the airport and on West End. So make sure you check them out. Uh, also, they have a also owned by the folks, the lovely folks who own Eighth and Roast. They also own a little restaurant down Eighth Avenue called Cinema, and they are doing some new stuff for the folks of Nashville that that we want to make new, sure we new, let, new let chef know. at Cinema. Yeah, um, new menu. There might be a there might be a little preview, a little preview in yours and my futures here for the uh, new chef at Cinema. I don't know. We'll report back on that. Are we allowed to report? Because it happened last night. Well, I mean, <laughs> no, new chef, new menu at cinema. So make sure you go check that out. It's going to be awesome. Actually, it just is awesome. How about that? Yeah, it just is. Cinema's awesome. great. Cinema's a wonderful place. Uh, and the upstairs bar. Fantastic. Love that place. Uh, not eighth and roast for your coffee, cinema for your dinner. Go check those guys out. Awesome. Okay. Your thoughts on the Titans putting out like 3000 word statement press release on the power structure. Uh, Amy Adams Strunk and Rand Carthons. Well, they, they certainly they certainly got the message, didn't they? That <laughs> maybe things weren't so clear. Up yeah. To well, this point. I mean, yeah. it's really easy to it's really easy to do when you're when you're trying to tell people something that you're excited about. It's it's not as easy to. They're not releasing three thousand words on 
on what the what the breaking point was with with Mike Frable. I mean, I would like I would like five thousand words on who decided Andre Dillard should be on the team. <laughs> no, look, we can have. There's a lot of backward looking stuff. No, I agree. It's much easier so, moving forward. But again, they laid out so that people don't know. They they announced Brian Callahan as the head coach. This long press release, but at the very bottom, they put in this entire new structure front office that sort of clearly defines the roles for Rand Clarthon, Chad Brinker, Anthony Robinson. Who reports to who? Who has final say on everything? To your point, that was always very murky in the previous regime with Mike Vrabel. Now it is as crystal clear as possible. But again, A.B. Adams, and Rand Carthon introduced Brian Callahan on Thursday at his press conference as the new head coach. Neither took a single question and neither has spoken about any of this stuff since the, the bizarre press conference that took place when Vrabel was fired. You attended the press conference. I did not. What was your what was your sort of what was your sort of takeaway of the oddity of not getting not getting to hear from from the decision makers? Well, it's it's what's strange is that we're we're trained. Like Vrabel, it's it's so funny. The Titans wanted one singular voice to be the voice of the organization for so long. And that voice they chose for many years to be Mike Vrabel. Trade Kevin Byard, Mike Vrabel. Fire John Robinson, Mike Vrabel. The person that was out front talking about all these things was Mike Vrabel, and that is the way the Titans wanted it. Now that that is not the case, and clearly they do not want him doing that anymore, you now what feels like has have this scattershot approach. And Amy Adams Strunk clearly doesn't, you know, that's not her strong suit necessarily is to be in these large group settings. She's very good one-on-one. Rand Carthon is a very likable guy. He was likable at his introductory press conference. I've talked with him at the sidelines in practice. He's a likable guy. Like he, he apparently wooed Brian Callahan with his likability and his communication and his personability. And that's why they got along so well. And just, I think he could do himself a lot of favors because now we know crystal from a crystal clear standpoint that he is completely in charge of every decision that he could do himself a lot of favors by taking all that, that, that personality that he apparently has that I've seen and putting it in front of, season ticket holders in front of the fans, I think would be, I I think an easy win in particular because people are so excited about the job he did hiring Brian Callahan. What did you think of as a, as sort of a communications experience, the press conference, what did you, what did you walk out of there knowing and and feeling about the organization? Brian Callahan is going to call plays. (laughs) That's number, that's number one. I think that, Two things simultaneously, just about Brian in, in particular, which is that it is a it's very clearly a very good thing to be in a football family and live around the NFL for most of your adult child for your childhood and your adult life. It is absolutely a huge benefit to you in terms of your ability to be a head coach. But it also felt like he was because he thanked literally like his brother-in-law and you know, like he thanked everybody, like everybody. It was to me, it felt very clearly like I have spent my entire life working to get out of my father's shadow, former head coach in the NFL, Bill Callahan. And but I want to do it. I wanted to earn it on my own. And now that it's here, I'm you're going to listen to everybody I want to thank. <laughs> and and, he's got, and, and, he's, now, and and now that it's here, I, I may bring that back. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> so ultimately, yeah. Well, that's just, which is fine. Ultimately, the air of the room was different. Vrabel carries with him a certain. I don't know what the right word is. There is just an air of confidence. Some of that's ego. Some of that's earned. Some of that's not earned. Some of that was correct. And some of it maybe was a mistake. I, I think, part. I mean, I think it's gravitas. I mean, when Vrabel steps up there, that's a guy who's been a winner, who's had success, who, you know, up until 
the kind of the wheels fell off here in the last year and a half yeah. uh, was was considered a shining success story for the Titans. And so, I, you know, yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. He has a presence. Callahan does not have that, but I don't know if the modern NFL needs it as much anymore. And I certainly don't think I think it's very clear that the Titans, like almost all sports organizations from a personality and culture standpoint, tend to swing back opposite directions. From AD to AD, from GM to GM, from coach to coach, going from John Robinson to Rand Carthon is to is a wild swing of personality and, and approach. And I think going from Vrabel to Callahan is going to be a wild swing in personality and approach. It doesn't mean that things like leadership and communications aren't the same. You know, you have to be thoughtful and care about your players and et cetera. But there was definitely a light. It was lighter. It was far lighter. I think you're going to get better answers out of Brian Callahan. I think he's going to be more interested in explaining things to folks from an X's and O's standpoint maybe less standoffish with the media. Also, it's his first ever press conference as a head coach in the NFL, and Mike Vrabel had done six years of them. It does wear on you. <laughs> so you answer questions for Paul Garski for six years, you know? So, <laughs> how, so was, no, how, how was how was PK's questions? They were fine. He had There were a couple of new people in the crowd that made it very competitive to get questions in. But I think once he got to football stuff, I thought it was really interesting, and I think Titans fans should be excited about it. But also, I just again, I think there was a lightness to the room that you that that everyone is like exhaled. I feel like maybe everyone was puckered up walking around Mike Vrabel the last year. But so it's, but again, that's everybody's to be blamed for that. That's not just a Vrabel thing. You, everyone's relationships are two way streets. So so people that cover things on a beat, whether it is the legislature or the Titans or what the the mayor, it can be very annoying when the world shows up to that point and starts asking questions. It was the TV guys, wasn't it? The TV guys were trying no. to get specific answers. Uh, no, 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 there wasn't. Actually, I thought the, the core group of the Titans media, I thought did a really good job asking good, thoughtful, open-ended questions. And I can run down the list of all of them that I thought did a really good yeah. job. Most of them who've been on this show. I yeah. think they all did a, a great job. The folks who, uh, there's only like one or two new people that were just like really trying to get get in some questions and they were they they were more I don't know they weren't like football centric they were more emotional and more psychological in nature which is fine too that's important too the only question i didn't think needed to be answered was sort of what what has he learned about um approaching injuries that's like the only question i would have asked probably at the very end but we got plenty we got plenty of time to talk about what he's doing to protect his team from injury uh and what he's learned as as a head coach in that that vein but otherwise you know, I thought everybody asked really good, smart questions. Is he he had good, smart answers for most of it, and I think fans should be excited about it. It's light, it's more informational, but again, that doesn't mean it's going to be winning more football games. That that's just so, a press conference. So let's say you now work for HBO. After that press conference, was there anything in there that that made you think, man, I'd like to have the Titans on for uh, for Hard Knocks next year? This is going to sound like an insult, but no. Uh, he did start crying almost about, I mean, talking about, talking about the Bengals. So maybe the Bengals, <laughs> I mean, so, so I mean, but, but to your point, like Mike McDaniels was uh, Mike McDaniels, good press conference guy, uh, entertaining. They, they knew he was going to be great in season here. Right. And, and I mean, and, he's and, a, he's got and, like that posh, like Miami vibe. Yeah. Yeah. And the same thing with the jets in the preseason version, sort of the traditional training camp version of, of hard knocks. You had Aaron Rodgers, and once you had Aaron Rodgers, you you were going to be fine. Is there is there enough there? Whether it's Callahan, whether it's Levis, 
I mean, it might, um, it won't, it might won't be Derrick Henry. Uh, no, I don't know. I don't think there is, but I actually don't think you want that necessarily. Like in college football, if you hire a coach who instantaneously makes you want to do a reality TV show, <clears throat> Colorado, it's not necessarily, it's, it's not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> it's not a good thing necessarily for wins and losses. They've hired guys who have won, quote unquote, won the press conference many times, and many, most of them have failed. So I don't think that's something you care about if you're a Titans fan, honestly. Like, keep us off HBO. Great. <laughs> but, but, but Ran and Brian being likable and Will, I think, I do think Will Levis is a sellable commodity because he's a fiery dude who is fascinating, who like has his own personality. He likes to troll with the Mayo thing, was always just kind of trolling a little bit. There's some like Lane Kiffin to his game. I, I think Levis would be a really interesting personality, but I, I think Brian and Ran, uh, Cala, Calaran or Calathon or Ranahan or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I think them just being like regular dudes and being likable is, is good for the team and bad television. If that makes sense. This makes sense. So you have a recommendation for us. Yes, I do. And we're going to go, we're going to dive much deeper into Brian Callahan as, as this offseason yeah. unfolds and we get yeah. closer to the draft and we'll have a lot more conversations about that. Um, yeah. So I have a recommendation and I, I need, I need people to tell me if I'm crazy or if I'm correct, or what? And I'm going to need you to watch this movie as well. I've already watched it twice. Saltburn, Amazon. I don't know any of the actors and actresses' names. I don't. Rosamund Pike. Go on. Richard Richard Grant. Richard R Richard Grant in a deep cut, one of the stars of Hudson Hawk. No idea who these people are. But, and I, and I don't think you've seen, the... But you've seen Barry Keown before. Nope, never heard of that. Uh, you've I never seen Barry Keown before? Sure, I, need, I am not going to spoil anything because I don't think the statute of limitations is up on this movie yet. So I think you need to watch it before I really tell you what I think about how it the plot actually unfolds. But man, it is a wacky movie. There are some scenes that are like your eyes, eyebrows go up and your jaw drops and you just go, what the fuck? So, 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 <laughs> so quickly give us what is the, what's the plot? What, what, where are we? The plot is. Like I think first or second year early in Oxford University in Oxford, England, and sort of this one guy, this one dude comes to class and he sort of figures he's a nerd, but he's super smart, but he kind of figures out a way to get himself into like the popular group kid thing who owns a castle like this. This one guy owns a he comes from royalty, essentially, and he owns a castle called Saltburn. And it's about the evolution of their relationship, but then also his relationship with everyone else in the group and then they the relationship with the family and i again i can't give too much away sure without like it's it is a psychological thriller but like set it's just it's it is utterly fascinating and i've watched it a second time i watched it by myself and then i watched it with my wife and it is it is utterly fascinating it's, everybody i know who's seen it has said uh, said visually it's just like whoa i mean it's just it's arresting visually they, they they shoot it in very like really bizarre camera angles which is really cool the characters the personnel i think the acting is fantastic the writing is brilliant like it, it is the cinematography is excellent the music is exquisite like everything about how they put this together is great and it is it's it's hard to talk about it without giving it away it really is like you just have to watch it it's it's sort of like adolescent psychological royalty thriller <laughs> is that totally normal genre the uh the the writer director on it is emerald Fennell, 
you might remember a movie that she did a couple of years ago called Promising Young Woman. Uh, Carrie Mulligan is in it. It's a that's another kind of. It, you should go watch Promising Young Woman now that you've now that you're you've been was, introduced to. This was good. This was a good movie to to her work. But it is not for the faint of heart. Like normally, my wife will fall asleep almost guaranteed between the thirty eight and fifty three minute mark of a movie. <laughs> <laughs> just guaranteed. I know exactly that's when. That's a very specific it's, reference. Every time. Every time. Look. It's coverage consistency and front multiplicity. Okay, I know exactly when it's going to happen, and uh, she made it for the whole movie because wow. she was just she was just like, "What?" So it's you got to watch it. You got to how's, how's the how's the run time on it? Uh, I'm looking up right, right, right now. Right around, so two, right, a, around it, right around two hours. Yeah, yeah, 131 minutes. So that's not know, bad. It's like a movie. Yeah, <laughs> it's not Killers of the Flower Moon. It's not that. I have not watched the new Jason Isbell movie yet. No, I have not. We'll we'll definitely check it out. Jen has been. Yeah, Jonesing to to, yep. to to check that out. We've been trying to get through a few other things, and it's very uh, good. We're we're gonna we're gonna probably check it out this weekend. So. And and again, without trying to give it away, the plot is fan- they did a fantastic job writing it. It's all it's that part of it's my favorite part. You, you, you just I, I can't if I say any more, it's I don't want to give it away. I don't want to spoil it. So go watch it and then come back and report back to me, and we'll talk about it on another episode, and we'll tell everybody. Spoiler alert: We're going to talk about this, and then if you haven't seen it. You can you can you can dip out, but as long as you dip out and go to Eighth and Roast, we're good with that. So go check out Eighth and Roast, of course. Swing by Cinema as well if you're looking for a nice place to go have some dinner with the uh, without the kids. <laughs> go just go to Cinema. Awesome. Good. And uh, thanks uh, to Ben. Thanks to Ben for joining us as well. So Braden, where can people find you? You can find me at Braden Gall at uh, Twitter.com and Blue Sky, and you can find him at S Cavendish on all of the dot coms. Uh, otherwise, have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. This has been Lamestream Sports here on the 440 Sports Network.